God. As I think about the story of what, what God has done, I, God loves stuff. He loves pictures. He loves images. I think maybe he, he loves them because he knows it, it connects with us. It makes sense with us. So he picks things like rainbows and he goes, that's, that's going to be a picture of my promise to you. I'll never destroy the earth with a flood again. He picks things like, like smoke in a temple and he says, this is a picture that I'll always be with you. And he picks juice and bread and he says, this is a picture that I will one day right all wrongs and that I will be with you in a way that I've never been with you before. Add a new kind of a piece of that you've never seen it because you live east of Eden. You live in a broken world. And so Jesus said, I want you every time that, that you take this to take it in remembrance of me because it's a promise that I have given that I will return. Wipe every tear from every eye. All things made right up there will come down here. God's kingdom will be established here, starting in our hearts, and that's what we do now. So I'm going to ask you to be seated and our ushers to come forward. And as this next song plays, I'm going to ask you to just take a few moments, take a minute, take two, three minutes, and examine your heart before God, because he's here. He's with you. We have an audience of one. And just ask God, what do you want to say to me tonight? And you can take this on your own. I won't come back up here for us to take it together. Just take it all on your own, and then we will continue in a time of worship.
to find us, let us out of death. To you alone belongs the highest praise. To you alone belongs the highest praise. As you remain standing, Let's read scripture together. I don't know, you, you might have grown up in a tradition where, where you did something called responsive reading. This is something that, that the church has practiced for a long time, reading scripture in community with one another. And so I'm gonna start by reading a section. It'll be on the screens, it'll, it'll say leader, and then we'll get to a piece where, where it'll say all. And I would ask all of us to read together, okay? Ephesians 1, 18 through 20. That you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also us together and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation for by him all things were created things in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we all say together, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they sang. Worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and might forever.
together. Why don't you find someone beside you, say hello, and then be seated. There's a cycle that needs to be broke here in Guatemala. Almost daily, children are being abandoned whether they be left on the side of the road or in a trash can or dropped off at an orphanage or a children's home. These kids are no longer a statistic. We have grown to know them and love them. We know that we can't help all of the orphans and abandoned children, but what if we can break this cycle for some of them? The issue of abandoned babies hits home for us every day here in Guatemala City. Just yesterday on the radio, we heard about two babies that were abandoned not far from here. Unfortunately for them, it was too late by the time authorities found them. And then three nights ago, here at the compound where we live, a mom showed up with her two and a half year old daughter at the gate. She wasn't able to take care of her daughter, Sophia, anymore. And it broke my heart as I started to put the pieces together and realize this mom has a new boyfriend and isn't able to take care of her child and wanted to a fresh start, as she put it. And so here, her two and a half year old daughter, Sophia, who's uh, been cared for by her mother for the, all of her life, was suddenly given to a group of strangers. And her eyes darted around the room and she cried out, Mama, Mama, looking around for her mother. The good news for Sophia is over the last few days, she's adjusting very well here. She's being loved and taken care of by some of the adults here as well as some of the older girls. And she's starting to experience the love of God and community. And so for her, uh, her life could be different. And there's a lot of babies and young children here in Guatemala who need an opportunity, need a, a fresh start, need a second chance.
don't know exactly how we will accomplish this, but we do know the faithfulness of our Lord, who brought us here and opened our eyes to this need. Please join us in helping get Mimi's house, family-style baby home, off the ground. You could help through prayer. You could help financially. And we hope that this will be such a great success that this will be replicated throughout Guatemala and perhaps beyond. Thank you. You guys know the, the, the Cherry family, Sean and Tiffany Cherry. My, my wife, Chris, and I were in a small group that started maybe four or five years ago, and Sean and Tiffany were in that small group with us, and um, actually it's been, it's been longer than that because we were there before they even started the whole adoption process of their, their littlest girl, Aubrey Ellen, who's this beautiful little Guatemalan uh, girl. And this has just been this awesome journey that's changed their lives. We sent them off, if you were here in that weekend service this last year, going down to, Gu to Guatemala. They're actually coming, flying into uh, DIA tonight. We were hoping that it'd be early enough that they'd actually be here with us tonight, but it's, it's a little later. So they're gonna be here this weekend with us in our weekend services. They'll uh, be at a table out in the mall area. And it just, it's really exciting how we're, we're able to just see tangible results of uh, impact in this uh, area where they are down in Guatemala. Um, and we're gonna be, I think we've got three teams going down this next year to Guatemala, to this specific location. And, and there are people who are stepping up who are saying, I wanna support financially and certainly through prayer and otherwise. So just, it's a fantastic ministry. I believe in them, know them, trust them. It's, it's an awesome thing. So be here this weekend for that. Run up to them, put your arm around their neck, um, thank them for what they're doing, because they're really doing quite an awesome thing. Hey, let me invite our ushers to come forward. This is our uh, weekly time of tithes and offering. Uh, this is for Timberline Church family. If, if you're a guest, we don't ask you to give. Um, if you're a family member, thank you for giving. Thank you for impacting, allowing us to do these sorts of things like this locally, as well as around the world. Um, I wonder if, if you've been here for the past number of weeks, if you would be able to write something on your bulletin, if, you, if you've been here for this series of emotionally healthy spirituality, could you complete a sentence, okay? If I were to ask you this question, I am beginning to realize dot, dot, dot. Um, there have been some thoughts. I, I, I posted something on our, on our Timberline Facebook page this last week. A few people responded there. Um, read some other responses of, of people saying, walking through these, these seven principles, we're going to talk about seven ones, the, the seven tonight, I am beginning to realize about my life, some things like this. Uh, my stoicism, in reality, is a self-protective device and a demean who God made me to be. I'm beginning to realize that I need more self-awareness. I'm beginning to realize uh, no more flying by the seat of my pants. Emotional health takes discipline and much hard work. Or I'm beginning to realize that I am more insecure and adverse to conflict than I admit. Uh, I'm spiritually dry. I'm running on empty. I need to slow down for Sabbath. Exploring my past is not dwelling on my past. Last one, uh, I take things too personally when it is not my personal responsibility. Uh, do you connect with any of those? Any of those, have, have you learned as we've been walking through this? 
Um, how many of these things would you say, man, that's, that is true of my life. I'm starting to see as, as I'm digging beneath the surface of the iceberg and looking at, at who I am. We have this um, illustration for the series of, of this iceberg, which, which speaks of the reality that, that much of our lives is beneath the surface. It's not publicly seen. It's not always even known by us. Um, let me give kind of another illustration. Just as I was thinking this last week, a picture I was thinking about when um, I had an opportunity to go, man, it's probably been about four years now over, over to Israel on this study tour. And I think some of you who are in this room, I, I know a couple people went on this trip and um, one, of the, one of the unique things is as, as you go around, virtually every place that's a, that's a city or a town has this big mound by it. I mean, it's, it's huge, this giant mound. And they call them a tell. Let me just write that word on the board here. Sometimes it's spelled with one L, sometimes it's spelled with two. But a tell is, is this mound. I think we might even have a picture of one here that, that you can see on our screens. So this is a Roman city here at the foot of this tell. And what happens over time is that each time a city was taken over by the new occupants, that they would essentially collapse everything there. They would knock down walls. They would knock down homes, pillars, everything that was there. And because it was honestly too difficult to move these large things, they would just build on top of it. So they would just knock it down and build on top of it. And over time, this, this, this accumulating size, along with all of these treasures of that, of that community, of that people group, are, are buried at that level. And so if you were to, if you were to look at even like a, a side picture of one, first they come in and this is, this is what the city looks like. And they, and they bury things underneath there. And then the next people come by and they build on top of that. And then they build on top of that. And if you were to cut one of these tells in half, what you would see is, is all of these layers, all of these levels, and the whole point of archaeology is, is to look into this idea of what can we determine about how these people viewed society, you know, these social, the social context, what can we learn about their, their, their economics, um, what can we learn about history, about just the environmental conditions that they lived in, the tools they used, how they did life, their spiritual lives, how they approached things, just how they did family, so many things we, we see as, as the archaeologist with every spade uh, turning, we learn more and more as he digs down deep into the history of, this, of these uh, areas. And I would suggest that one of the roles of, of the Holy Spirit, like a divine archaeologist, is to, is to dig through these layers of our, of our lives. And we learn that, that pursuing what we're, what we're calling emotionally healthy spirituality, it's not like a it's not, a, a, it's not an end goal. It's not, a, um, it's not something you achieve is maybe a better way to put it. Uh, it's not a success story. It's something that it, it's, it's more like a process. And so it's something that, that we keep coming back to. We keep digging down or we keep finding areas. And sometimes it's like it's an area that we already found before. But we realize we didn't sift through this enough. <laughs> There's more stuff. And, and the spirit wants to take me to those levels again, maybe new levels, maybe going back to old levels in my life. So it's a journey. It's a process. Let me give you two other vivid images that the Bible uses to talk about this whole process of developing emotionally healthy spirituality. Proverbs 20 verse 5 reads this. The purposes of a man's heart, he says, are deep waters, but a man of understanding draws them out. Okay. Now think about that 
that picture. The purposes of your heart, he says, are, are deep waters, but a person who has wisdom, who has, who has understanding, has this ability to, to draw them out. Think about first this concept of deep waters. If you were to go back to the ancient world, uh, deep waters were, they were like the unknown. You know, it, it's murky down there. You don't know what's there. It's, uh, it's, it's filled with uh, mystery, often things that are, that are dangerous. And then it speaks of the purposes of the heart. This is, that, this is that beneath the iceberg, beneath the surface of the water, beneath the surface of the iceberg. These are the layers of, of the archaeological tell that we discover from doing all these steps, looking beneath the surface, looking at my past. What are the things that have, that have shaped me? As I look at, okay, what does it mean to really grieve what's gone on in my life? Those are all these pieces that as I, as I draw up those deep waters, these places that are just unknown. Another place that speaks of this process of pursuing emotionally healthy spirituality is Jeremiah chapter 17. Verses 9 and 10, listen, listen to how the author, Jeremiah, uh, speaks of the heart, this beneath the surface. He says, the heart is deceitful, is the first word he uses, deceitful, and he says, above all things. It's like the most deceitful thing. And he says, it's beyond cure. He's using a couple different pictures here and sewing them together. And then he says, who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. So think about these pictures. He says it's beyond cure, okay, this whole beneath the surface thing. So point being is you can't fix it yourself. You will never be able to, to dig down this and this process on your own and, and fix this. It's beyond cure. And then he says, who can understand it? Point being there is that we are in many ways like totally blind to the areas in our life, right? You have people in your life, and you just go, man, like, why can't they see that they do that? You know, they're in a social sitting, social setting, and they do something, you just go, why, like, why don't they, everyone else sees it. Why don't they see it? Think of an eye, okay? Now, an eye can, like, see what? Well, it's clear. Like, it can see everything, right? Except one thing. What's the one thing an eye can't see on its own? It can't see itself, right? It can see everything. Phenomenal perception. The one thing the eye cannot see by itself is itself. Now, it, it knows it's there, but it, but it can't inspect itself. It needs the help of a mirror, right? No wonder that the Bible, when the Bible speaks of its role in our lives, it actually uses this picture. When we listen to the New Testament book of James, Jesus' half-brother, in James chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, he writes this, Anyone who listens to the word of God but does not do what it says, is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at it, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. So this goes back to that Jeremiah passage. It's deceitfully wicked. Who can know it, right? We can't even, we can't even accurately self-diagnose what's going on. Who can know it? Well, verse 10 in Jeremiah says, I, the Lord, search the heart and the mind. So listen to this. This is, this is a little sad. Here's God's verdict on your heart. Here's God's verdict on my heart. Um, it's like trying to find something in the pitch dark, right, deep waters. It's like a con artist, deceitfully wicked. It's like an incurable disease. Great. <laughs> that's, that's my heart. That's the center of who I am, Scripture says. But here's the point. 
you and I need someone who can provide light in the darkest places. We need someone who is wise enough to not himself be conned or fooled by the deception there. We need someone who is skilled enough in the art of medicine who can cure the incurable heart disease. Again, the answer, verse 10, I, the Lord, he says, I, the Lord, search the heart and the mind. Those like, those like deepest places that, that even you don't even know they're there. You're at those levels in the tell. They're so far beneath the iceberg. You're at the deepest part of the oceans that you, you're not even aware that they're there. Um, I, I personally come to the conclusion that through this series, I am not as, as emotionally healthy as like I thought I was before we started reading this book and, and started going through this in, in many ways. I am, I am a lot more um, passive aggressive in conflict than I was aware of. Um, I rely way too much on certain defense mechanisms in my life to, to, not, to not really let everyone in my life know like the deepest part of me, who I really am in my life. And um, now I'm, I'm, I'm pretty uncomfortable addressing a lot of these issues, even just all by myself, right? Because it's not, it's not like, painful. There are parts of this that, that aren't fun to dive into. And um, you know, I, I, I think I know God is pushing me to, to begin this process of, okay, Brent, you need to really be just gut-level honest. You need to think about these things. You need to think about the relationship to God and the relationship to others and how it's coloring that. And, you know, because we're, you know, we're talking about this, I've got friends who know about it. You know, there's some accountability there, even that I pursue that. However, th there's still a loophole for me, <laughs> as I was thinking. You know, because honestly, there's a part of me that doesn't want to go here. And so there is a loophole. One way I can get out of having to deal with, with some of the really ugliness inside of me, um, all I have to do in order to guarantee that I really don't go that deep with developing, thinking about pursuing emotionally healthy spirituality is to do one thing. All I have to do is just hurry <laughs> in my life, in everything. I just, um, all I have to do to kind of forget about all this is, is just to end my day pretty exhausted from all the tasks that I've just been filling up and filling up and taking on. All I have to do is to allow all of my free time to, to just be sucked into this vacuum that of the world that I live in with all my responsibilities of an already overburdened life. All I need to do is to tell myself that I should take every opportunity and really view it as kind of, you know, God's presenting me, you know, more great things that I could do. Um, John Ortberg, who's a guy that I just, I've always enjoyed his, his, his books and his speaking, he was a teaching pastor out at a Willow Creek church for a number of years, kind of an associate teaching pastor. And he, he was offered a job as, as the senior pastor out in Menlo Park, uh, California. Beautiful. This is like the Bay Area, a gorgeous area. And, and so he, he was thinking about it. And he's got this mentor. We've talked about this guy, Dallas Willard, before. Dallas Willard is just this great guy focused. He's like a philosopher, but he's totally dialed into just the spiritual formation world and a lot he writes a lot in that area. And Willard is, is John's mentor. And so as John's thinking about taking, you know, should I take this position? What do I do? And he kind of decided he was going to do it. And so he tells this story in one of his books where he calls Dallas Willard. And he says, Dallas, like, wh what do I need to do 
to be sure to have like an effective ministry, but not wreck my life. You know, I'm taking this job. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a huge responsibility. Like, what, you know, what do I do? So he said, like, he had his pencil on a paper and he's on the phone with him. You know, what do I do? And he said, uh, Willard just said real slowly, he said, John, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. He said, okay, God, okay, okay, what next? What do I do next? And he said, John, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And he said, that was it. That stuck with me. This is you know, the, the great philosopher who's the department chair at the you know, USC and, and, and this great writer. That's what he told him. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life if you don't want to wreck it. A guy who's lived a long life, a, a wise person. And this is how we live, isn't it? See, because when I hurry, think about our principles we've talked about. When I hurry, am I going to look beneath the surface? Yeah, maybe real quickly, right? I mean, stuff I can see real fast. Okay, yeah, I'll there, good. If I'm hurrying, am I really going to be able to go back to break the power of the past in order to go forward? Yeah, maybe I'll just, you know, step off. I'll think about it, but I mean, that, you know, that's that takes time. It takes work. It takes effort. I don't know. Am I really going to live in brokenness and vulnerability? Is hard, and it takes a lot to develop. If I'm hurrying, I'm not going to do. Am I really going to be able to receive the gift of limits of boundaries, God-given boundaries in my life? And not necessarily run after something that, oh, I wish I could, I wish I were doing that, I wish I were doing that. If I'm in a hurry, if I'm in a hurry, I'm not even thinking long enough to be able to evaluate. I'm just jumping onto the next opportunity. Am I really gonna go through the process of expanding my soul through grief and loss? Mourning over those areas that maybe I can't pursue, things I will not have in my life? No. Tonight, what we're talking about, and you see this in your bulletin, is this idea of slow down, think of this phrase, slow down to breathe the air of eternity. It's this with God life. How do I do that? Because I would suggest this is kind of the linchpin to like getting all the others even possibly right if we don't do this one here, slowing down to breathe the air of eternity. See, when our activity, even really good activity for God, it's not nourished by this like slow pot roast life with God, then what happens is our, our experience of, of the Christian life, it, it kind of shifts. And it's not, it's not being with God in this really slow kind of lingering concept. It turns into kind of work task activity. And what happens is The joy of life, of just being with Christ slowly, all, like almost without perception, like you don't even know it's going, disappears. Now, this is really interesting. Any, anyone here ever wonder why, why the number 40 appears in the Bible so much, right? Like, like there was a really popular book that was just written a little while ago. Remember what that one was called? 40, 40 Days of Purpose, right? And in the Bible, like this, this word 40, like it appears, it keeps popping up all over the place. And there's, there's this really interesting pattern in scripture. You think that like you go all the way back to the very first book, okay, the book of Genesis. And in this really severe act of judgment, remember God's decide, God decides to, to, to flood the earth. And after it, it rains for 40, for 40 days before this, this new earth that God's talking about kind of begins to surface and see. Before God calls Moses to deliver his people from slavery, under Pharaoh, 
Moses spends 40 years, right, as a shepherd in Midian before God brings the people out, before he does this thing. Before God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, which is this totally new way of relating to God for all the people, he, he, he quarantines Moses on the top of Mount Sinai for 40 days. Before God releases the Israelites to enter into Canaan, in, into this land of you know, flowing with milk and honey, it's, it's, it's a totally different kind of way of living. The promised land under the leadership of Joshua. God requires his people to wander the wilderness for, any guesses? 40 years. 40 years. Jonah delivered a warning to the city to, to, uh, of, of uh, Nineveh to wake up, to repent, or God was going to wipe them out. However, there would be a period of time before whatever drastic event, either brand new life or destruction, of 40 days before God acted. Jesus fasted for 40 days in the desert before the Spirit launched the most powerful expression of the kingdom of God ever seen in the world, this, this three-year ministry of Jesus. After his resurrection, Jesus remained on earth for 40 days before ascending to the Father and giving the most powerful gift, God's Spirit, to reside inside each person in, a, in, in an even, in Jesus' words, even a, even a more catalytic way than Jesus' presence with them bodily would have been. So here's the pattern that we see. 40, 40 comes to be understood as, as a time of preparation, a time of leading up to a time when, when God would do something like really big. And he's somehow gonna, he's gonna change the world or he's gonna change a person or he's going to change a nation, or he's going to change a community, a people group, or a movement in some way as we know it. And so this idea of, of 40 becomes sort of in the minds of Jesus' followers that God's, God's on the verge of something. He's going to do something big. But, but the 40 is always this dull <laughs> kind of waiting, rest, holding back. It's, it's this slowness, it's this pot roast kind of lifestyle. It, it's being with God, oftentimes, but it's not, the, it's not the thing you write a book about. It's not the, the exciting book part comes after the 40, but the book part never happens without the 40. The activity or excitement never happens with that. There was a group of, of Christians called Desert Fathers. You ever hear of them? Really, really interesting group of people. These are Christian monks who live out in the deserts in the Near East. This is during like the 500s and the 600s, okay? So we're talking like 1,500 years ago. And they were called the Desert Fathers. And they were deeply concerned with the importance of, of cultivating the, the interior life. And they were extremely cautious, worried, concerned about becoming spiritual busybodies. Just focus on that, even, even like church activity, even, even Christian activity, whatever it might be. And, and confusing mere activity, mere doing, with, with having a growing love and adoration of God and of others this way as well. In fact, throughout church history, um, there became something known as the seven deadly sins. You ever hear of those? The seven deadly sins. One of those was sloth, right? Now, the, the word that they, that they first used is Latin. It, it carried this idea of not attending to something. Okay, we use, we use the word sloth, but we're only talking about half of the coin. The concept they had is to not attend to something 
is one of the seven deadly sins, meaning it leads to all these other deaths in your life. To not attend to the important things in life is to breed more death and more destruction in your life. But see, here's the point. Um, sloth are not attended to, you know, we think of laziness, right? If, if someone's slothful, oh, they're just lazy, they don't eat. But that's only one side of not attending to something. You know what the other side is? It's becoming overly active. It's, it's the sort of busyness with the wrong things. Busyness with, uh, use the phrase, the tyranny of the urgent, right? Oh, I gotta do this, and I gotta do that, and I gotta respond to that. That's, that's this idea of not attending to the important things in my life. See, because when I become overly active, I, one reason, honestly, why we do it, I think sometimes, is because I cannot bear the effort, the difficulty involved, or demanded by life of, of reflection, of, of solitude with God. Any of you ever realize like, how much noise you have going on? How many of you have your TVs on just even when you're not watching, just background noise, right? Or you get in the car and the first thing you do, you know, after the, after the keys turn, it's just, it's radio, right? I mean, we just, we so often in our culture just have, have noise going on constantly. And when it's not there, it's, it's kind of discomfort. You remember, I think it was week two, Pastor Dick Both uh, was, was speaking and, and he, he quoted this French mathematician philosopher guy, Blaise Pascal, remember that? And he had this great quote, he said, um, all men's miseries derive from not being able to sit in a quiet room. <laughs> Which is kind of, first it sounds like some total overstatement, like take it easy, Blaze, right? Um, no, what he's saying is all human miseries derive from the simple fact that we don't stop to breathe the air of eternity. And then I get involved in a hundred messes in my life and anxiety builds, and busyness grows, and, and, and I never see God and I'm busy working for him, but I'm not with him in my life. So how do I slow down to breathe the air of eternity? I think we need to have daily rhythms. And this is something that is so foreign to many of us. We need to have daily rhythms of being with God. Okay, let me give you just a couple ways to think about this. Um, do you know the difference between being with God and getting something from God? Think about that. How many times would you say, if you were honest, when I go to open scripture or read the Bible or, you know, whatever, I'm, am I approaching it as I want to be with him or I want to get something from him? Now, I don't mean a selfish thing like I want to, you know, I want him to you know, give me a new car. I'm saying I need, I need some sort of, a, I need wisdom on this. I need things that scripture tells us to do. It tells us to pray for wisdom. But when I approach it as I need something, it's this kind of one way I'm looking for, you know, kind of, I'm looking for productivity. And just the thought of being with him kind of feels like, oh, I'm not doing anything. This is, you know, he's probably disappointed with me because <laughs> I'm, I'm just being here, but it feels so inactive, unproductive. Here's, I think, one way to do it is, is to realize that all of life and thought is done in front of God. Right? Think, about, think about people in your life. Um, you have a conversation with someone. There, there are at least three ways you do it. You talk to the person, right? I'm talking, I'm person A, and I'm talking to person B, okay? So I'm talking to them. I could be talking uh, about them, but to a second person or a third person, but in their presence. So I either talk to them, I, I talk about them in their presence, or I talk about them in their absence, right? Just the two of us, and I'm talking about someone else. 
Have you ever spoken about someone else in their absence with words that like you would not have used had they been there? Right? Um, there's this, there's this great, you know, Mark Twain has got like the greatest stories. You kind of wonder how many of these stories are real because this stuff doesn't happen. It's kind of like Jeff Lucas. This stuff doesn't happen just to one person in life. But Mark, Mark Twain tells this story about once riding a train from Maine um, after this very highly successful three-week fishing trip that, that he was on. And, and, and he's bragging about his very large but illegal catch. Um, on this train, and there's only one other passenger in the car, and so he's talking to him, and oh, I did this, and I caught this fish, and you know, he's just going on and on talking about it, and you know, Twain, uh, as he's talking, he, this guy's kind of becoming just increasingly agitated and bothered by this conversation, so finally Twain says, so, so like, who are you, and like, what do you do, and, um, and the stranger said, I'm the, I'm the state game warden, <laughs> and uh, warden asked, who are you, right, and Twain said, to tell you the truth, I am the biggest liar in the whole United States. <laughs> um, and here's the point. Often when I'm speaking about someone, or, 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 or to someone, I should say, or about them in their presence, I hide my real heart, don't I? Um, you're on a job interview, right? You're, you're on a first date with someone. Uh, you're, you're, you're speaking to someone in authority. You, you filter what you say. <laughs> Right? Because you're trying to manage their perception of you. That's why we do it. So if I'm speaking, say, to um, you know, a boss or a, or a teacher or a policeman or whatever it might be, there's a dynamic, both in what I say, what I'm thinking, and we, like, even in my body. I mean, my body language is different when I'm speaking to someone who's, like, when I'm in their presence. And so there's always, like, a sense of effort. You know what I mean? Like you get done from the end of the day and you've been with people where you're, you're, you're managing your perception or their perception of you. And it's tiring, right? You get done and you're just like, it's just it's work. And you can do it every day, but you don't want to, you don't want to be in that person's presence all the time. And so, and so you guard your words because you're thinking about impressions. Let's bring God into the picture. We are never speaking in God's absence. Right? We know that. Um, or acting in his absence. See, the Hebrew people had this radical idea. This was like really, really radical in the ancient world. They, they had this idea that that was totally different of God, and, and it changed the world. Because see, the predominant view in their day and age was this, was this idea that, that gods are localized. And this is called henotheism. You say, well, yeah, there are lots of gods. It's that polytheism. There are many gods. But, but henotheism is the idea that I just, I worship this one kind of like when I'm in his town, right? If I go to a different town with a different god, well, I, I kind of pay homage to him or I you know, give deference to him. But when I'm in, a, in, this, in his presence, I speak and I act and I live a certain way because this is his area and he's there and he knows what's going on in my life. And so the Hebrews had this idea. Solomon... When he built the temple for God, he had this amazing statement, 1 Kings 8.27. He says, but will God really dwell on earth? And then he says, the heavens, even the highest heavens can't contain you. Because he's kind of wrestling with, I'm building a temple for God. And God says, my presence will be there, and I want you to come there, and that's how you're going to pray to me. You have to do it there. Tear down all other altars. This is where it's going to be. But then he also says, but I'm a being which is not limited by space and time. And he's like, well, so... Why are we doing this then? You know, 
And, and there's this tension there of, but, but God, I mean, the heavens can't contain them, much less a building that I create in some way. Similarly, the ancient world had this idea that, that, that what a person does, like religious activity, is totally disconnected from who they are as a person. You might say their character, maybe their moral life in some way. David in Psalm 139, though, reflects this radical Hebrew idea when he says, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit, you know when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out, my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. The four words on my tongue, you know it. And he says, where can I go from your presence? Right? Where can I hide from you? If I go down to the darkest depths, we talked about that earlier, he goes, even there, it's like daylight for you. you know? If I go to the far side of the sea, because remember, localized God, even there, your hand guides me. It's like you're this God who is unlimited by time and space. And this idea changed the world. And what I would suggest is that one of the ways that, that, we, that we can actually engage in a life of, of contemplation, dedication, I can even say like solitude and prayer, is that I have to have my mind reformed by this radical idea that I both live my life always in front of God and that he, he knows what's going on inside my heart. So I cannot manage his impression of me. I can't fake it, right? Do you, do you drive different when you see uh, a squad car behind you? <laughs> yeah, but why? Because, because you want to be a good driver? No, right? Is it, is it, yeah, it's because you don't want to get caught. That's why I do it too, right? So how we live depends on who's around. But you see, God doesn't want forced compliance. You want to know why God is not always in the rearview mirror? Christians wrestle with this concept. The Hebrews wrestled with it. They called it the hiddenness of God. Why does God sometimes doesn't feel like he's really, really there? It's because God does not require forced compliance in our life. And so God makes it possible out of this enormous love for us to live as though he were not there. Isn't that crazy? And yet that's what it takes. In light of this, think about prayer. I would suggest that some of the reasons I, I have a sense of strain, like when I'm praying, it, it feels like tiresome and a strain. You know why sometimes honestly I think that it is? Is because I'm not praying what I'm thinking. I'm praying what I think I should be thinking. Ever done that? <laughs> I should be, you know, talking about this to God. I, you know, I shouldn't be talking about am I going to get a raise or, you know, what about that stupid neighbor who's leaving all his junk in the dad stuff. Now, that's where my mind, I find my mind keep, you know, it keeps going there, and so it's worth an effort to be like, no, I should, I should pray about this, pray about that. But see, what if, what if this concept of, of realizing that I'm living my life before God, always there, and he already knows what I'm thinking, and he doesn't force compliance, he wants the real me, what if I actually talk to him about my neighbor who leaves his junk outside? What if I actually talk to him about that financial thing? What if I actually talk to him about that person at work who just drives me crazy? What if I talk to him about that temptation in my life that no one even knows about? I mean, just gut level. What if I said, God, God, I don't want to change. I want to keep doing this. You know, I know it's right. I don't want to stop. What would that do to your prayer life? What if it would actually become a true interaction? That's not, it's not difficult. You don't feel tired afterwards. It actually energizes you in your life. What if the goal of prayer, it's not to get good at praying? <laughs> Ever thought about that? 
What if the goal of prayer is not to set how many, see how many records I can set by how long or how often? What, what, if, the, what if the goal of prayer is to live my life and, and speak all my words in, in the joyful presence of God, knowing that, that he is always there? Jesus did this constantly. So a key to our freedom is to, is to rediscover some of these practices of saying, how do I live my life in front of God? On the bottom of your uh, bulletin, there's a little web link on there. And I wish we had more time to, to jump into a lot of this stuff. We don't. But it's, it's this idea of, of, okay, things like Sabbath. Sabbath has been a huge practice and part of the Christian tradition for years, not because it's a rule, but because as Jesus said, you weren't made for the Sabbath. It's not a matter of you conforming to something that is like you don't fit with. The Sabbath is this beautiful gift so you don't burn out, so you can experience God in all the rest of your life. And so doing things like stopping, just stopping, resting, delighting, contemplating. When I Sabbath, um, nothing measurable is accomplished. But I'm doing what energizes. What, like, what energizes you? What would you say if you were to write down on a piece of paper? What do you say? Man, when I do that, I just, like I have more energy to then go do the stuff that kind of deplete things. You know, like that's, maybe that's part of your Sabbath. It really might be. And it's not just about one day. It's, it's about all of our days. Powerful things can happen when we practice Sabbath because our, our, our focus changes. This is one thing that's true. You know, this is true about money, right? One of the practices of the Christian faith has always been to give of the first. And it's not just because God wants the first and the rest is mine. It's There's this weird dynamic that when I give the first, all of a sudden, all the rest of it doesn't feel like mine anymore. And it, and it doesn't have control over because money, money really easily gets control over me. I don't know about you. But, but, but when I give the first, it breaks the power that it has. And all of a sudden, I have a new freedom to handle the other stuff. And I think it's kind of that way with this time thing, too. When I, when I Sabbath, all of a sudden, the rest of the time, the rest of the six days, like, they don't, they don't feel as controlling. They don't feel like they're just, you know, bearing down as much. It's like my, my experience of them is different. Um, one thing that Christians have always done, and we've, we've provided these. These are on the back. There's a, there's a little table in the back. And what we're going to do here, we're going we're gonna to end just a couple minutes early. And I would ask you to do a couple things. One would be pick up this little piece of paper. Um, anyone here ever heard of, this is something that, again, Christians in different traditions for like a thousand years have been practicing. It's called a or a creating a rule of life, a rule. A rule comes from the Greek word. It's not rule as in like you've got to obey this. Rule comes from, I'm sorry, it comes from a Latin word meaning trellis. Anyone here ever put a trellis up in their garden or something? The whole point of a trellis is, is to allow what, what grows but can't get off the ground on its own to like get up off the ground to be more fruitful, more productive, and, and it crawls. And so these ancient Christians said, what if, what if we had a trellis of life, a rule of life? What if, what if there were things that I chose and I put in my life like a trellis to help me to be able to get off the ground for my spiritual life to like be vibrant and joyful and not burdensome and like, oh gosh, I gotta go do that again and, and difficult. And, and so Christians would develop their own rules within communities, monastic communities oftentimes. And this is something that we've created. On the back, 
these are the areas of prayer. And there's different statements of this, this is how I'm going to live. This is a trellis to my life. And here's how I'm going to engage with prayer. Rest. This is part of the trellis of my life is rest is going to be involved. And here's what it's going to look like. Relationships. Work and activity. Those are the four categories. And we say this on the front. It says the rule of life serves as an intentional, conscious guide to help us keep God at the center of everything we do. It is an anchor, a kind of banister to support us as we move forward in our journey with and for God. It is how we do life together at Timberline Church, expressing the longings of our heart to God. It's the idea of freedom, of doing something in totally different ways maybe you've never done it before, but that gives you this totally new freedom in your life. So I'd like you to pick these up on your, on your way out. But before you go out, I also want us to do something else. One of, one of the values that we have as being community is, is, is to build relationships. And so one thing that we've done is we've said, you know what, we're, we're in this room, and it's a little different room. It's, it's really conducive to building relationships. It's, it's great to just hang out in here. We're ending like five minutes before we have to pick up kids. And so we've got coffee in the back. Um, Karen Bauer did a wonderful job of making coffee for us. We've got cookies in the back. I think it's decaf too, so you can you can have it if you're worried about not sleeping. There there, there are cookies in the back, um, and we just want we just want to talk. We want to stop. We just want to rest. We want this is maybe a little piece of Sabbath, right? You just you don't have to be productive. You don't have to go into the next thing right away, okay? Um, and we just want to be together, being together. Because God talks a lot about if, if we don't know how to be together, it's probably going to be real hard to just be with God as well. So we want to practice that, okay, as a community. Um, let's pray together. Would you stand with me? And I want us to pray and then just, just be together as a family, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are, we are grateful for what you are doing in our community. And it's with anticipation, God, that we say... Would you, would you do some really neat, maybe involving some tough moments, but things in our life, God, that would expand our souls? Would you show us what it means to, to look deep into who we are, to, to pull up what's there, and become people who are just filled with this kingdom joy thing that you talk so much about, that rivers of living water would flow out of our bellies. That would just be so natural and beautiful. And easier because your son said that his his yoke is easy and his burden it's not heavy that it's light and that's how we want to live show us how to do that thank you for being patient with us that when we don't get it right right away you just keep calling us forward god that's how we want to live thank you for community for brothers and sisters in this room we love you father and we want to be with you show us as we try to do that in jesus name we pray amen amen you guys thank you so much for being here uh, we'll see you this weekend. Hang out for a while. Grab some coffee. Grab a cookie and just be together. Okay?
Thank you. 